Thank you for joining us today at Miniature Wargaming Labs a podcast. My name is James, and today I'm joined by Edward Aoyang. Yes, Ed is from um, our friendly local game store in the Albuquerque area, Etten Games, which we talked about uh, two episodes ago. And today we'll have Ed take us on his journey of how he became a gamer. But the thing I know Ed most for is X-Wing. But first, let's talk about um, what we have on the hobby table. Ed, what have you been working on lately? Sure. So let's see. Um, I've been working on painting some Battletech miniatures, um, original uh, Ironwind uh, metals, uh, pewter Battletech miniatures, working on some inner sphere lances of those. Um, got one for House Steiner that I'm finishing up, one for House Merrick that's just starting and um, some for the Capellan Confederation that I just primed. So uh, that's what I'm working on from a uh, Battletech standpoint. Um, with X-Wing, and I know we're gonna talk about this shortly, but we've got some new squadron packs that uh, just arrived. So I'm working on creating some new uh, lists based off of the new pilots and new ships that I'm hoping to use here uh, when we get to play a little bit more in person soon. Well, let me ask you on your Battletech, I noticed like whenever you post pictures of it, you actually like build a lance. So you actually have several different houses and different regiments where I basically am building for Alpha Strike. So I'm building a whole unified regiment at once. You actually are playing more of like the hex encounter system and you're like doing four mechs on four mechs. So you have like a huge collection of different lances. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. So with the Inner Sphere, I do um, typically four mech lances at a time. And with uh, if I'm painting clans, I'm doing uh, five mech uh, stars at a time. And just trying to keep a, a theme amongst them. And even though we could use them interchangeably in gameplay, it just helps create a little cohesiveness and helps me organize my mechs a little bit better as well. No six mech comp stars? Uh, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, for me, um, I've been busting out terrain. So this is all Games Workshop. So it's not one of the games we, we haven't conned you into playing any of the Games Workshop games yet. Um, but no, I've been going through tons of Necromunda terrain and I've got the new terrain for Pariah Nexus. And so just filling that out. And it's like mass chain production. <laughs> it's like, let me paint the same Necron crate. Eight times Are you going over. on a particular theme right now, or uh, green <laughs> with with light, white glowing gems? No, you're right. For the Necromunda, so I've I've decided that all my terrain, Sector Mechanicus, Admech terrain, is all going to be the same black and white and metal color scheme. Mm -hmm. That way, I can use it for every game, and it all matches. Because I know, like, um, you're right. When you see like Games Workshop take pictures, it's like here's our Imperial city terrain and it's like one color scheme and here's our admec terrain. It's like, no, I'm not going to buy terrain and then mix them on the board. And it's like, well, this was from a desert board, but let me pretend it's underground. So like, it's going to be the same color scheme throughout. Uh, Cause I do plan on using it for other games that are not games workshop. So like planet 28, there's other games coming out. It's like, you know what? I want all my terrain to be matchy, matchy, matchy and cohesive when I put it out there. So well, having that interchangeability is really nice because I'm thinking <laughs> about doing that for the Battletech side of things. I've gotten some high density foam to do some elevated hex terrain with, but you know, for buildings and things like that to be to use them between Alpha Strike and uh, classic Battletech, I mean, again, universality is a great thing if you can make it work. So, well, let me ask you, did, did you want to talk about that dropship you had, Nate? <laughs> could yeah why, why don't you uh, mention because that thing is impressive <laughs> yeah well I, I can actually show it to you because i happen to have it right behind me uh, give me one second here through the magic of uh i can't say it. holy all right for those who can't see that is the size that's bigger than a volleyball <laughs> yeah it's bigger than a basketball <laughs> so i i i got iron wind medals like their um drop ship the new one they did yeah, is that the Fortress dropship? So it was originally, I thought originally it was gonna be um, 
a union or uh, something like that. However, um, after posting the picture, it's actually a clan variant dropship. And I can't remember the name of it offhand. Somebody uh, responded to it and I updated my uh, post, but it's actually a clan-based dropship. Okay, so like the dropship I got from Iron Wind Metals, the one that they did special for the Kickstarter. Um, so Etten backed the Kickstarter retail-wise and they got some of the dropships in. So I bought it, put together, but it's scaled for Hex and Grid Battletech. So it's an abstraction, so it's smaller. That beach ball you're holding is actually true scale dropship. That I didn't, you know what? Your pictures don't ca do justice to how big a true scale battle mech dropship is. It is massive. It's, it's essentially one to 285 scale, just like the mechs. So um, this thing is about 13 to 14 inches tall or as a sphere, I guess. So it is pretty massive. It is full mech scale um, from that standpoint, which it's kind of cool though to take up you know your entire uh, foldable um, paper hex mat. <laughs> I think. Yeah. yeah, we're gonna you're gonna have to use that in Alpha Strike. <laughs> yeah, we'll use it for Alpha Strike. So, Ed, one of the big reasons I wanted to bring you on the podcast was for a product spotlight. So, in first of in X Wing 1.0, I played that a lot, like every Friday. Get a couple ga games in. Now I transitioned to 2.0, but um, you ran your X-wing games at a very bad day, so I haven't actually played 2.0 recently. But I saw the three new expansions that came out for X-wing, and I had some had some interest in that. Why don't you run us through those uh, new uh, squadrons that came out? Sure. Yeah, so, um, you know, the ownership of the X-Wing miniatures franchise has changed a little bit um, recently going to Atomic Mass Games. So this is kind of their first, you know, newer release, first newer release since, um, since all that happened. It was, it's kind of been an anticipated release. Um, essentially, there are uh, three new squadron packs that are based off the original three factions. Uh, Rebels, uh, Empire, and Scum. Um, the first one within the Rebel, um, the first, I guess, Rebel ex, uh, Squadron pack is based off of uh, Phoenix Cell. So if anybody's a fan of the um, Star Wars Rebels animated series and understands that lore, this the Squadron pack is essentially based off of that. And it includes um, characters like Hera Syndulla, uh, Wedge Antilles, prior to him becoming the pilot that we all know, uh, Sabine Wren, um, all those um, characters from, or a lot of those characters from that animated series are now present in this uh, squadron pack. Um, the pack includes two original A-wing fighters as well as a, a B-wing, um, and you actually see the sort of evolution of how those happened in the animated series, and now they're bringing them to life um, with these pilots. So it's a pretty exciting um, a pack. Uh, some of these uh, ships haven't been used as prevalently in X-Wing 2.0 with uh, previous metas and things like that. Um, however, um, this is adding another dimension. I think we're going to see a lot of play here, especially at the competitive level um, over the next few months. Um, the next squadron pack is within the uh, Empire or um, Imperial uh, faction. Uh, and this is comprised of two TIE Interceptors and a TIE Defender. Um, so ships that were very uh, strong within X-Wing 1.0, um, not as prevalent in 2.0, at least uh, more recently, but again, I think the squadron pack is going to change that. Uh, one really interesting character and pilot that shows up in this squadron pack is the Darth Vader and the TIE Defender. And if anybody re has read the uh, Thrawn series by Timothy Zahn for Star Wars, there's a time when Darth Vader actually pilots a TIE Defender, and this is the realization of uh, the books, uh, which makes it interesting. Uh, extremely powerful ship, add-on one of the strongest Imperial pilots ever created, and you have a very interesting combination. Um, again, it's drawn a lot of interest in the competitive community as well as the recreational community, and We'll have to see how he integrates. It's a very expensive ship, 
as uh, one can expect um, with all of its abilities. But again, very exciting. And adding quite a few more uh, pilots to the TIE interceptor uh, group. Uh, traditionally in X-Wing 1.0 and in 2.0, um, the uh, Imperial Ace known as Soontir Fell has been uh, one of the strong um, pilots and ships in that faction. And now they're adding on several other interceptor pilots that have uh, some pretty cool abilities. So um, I think it'll be a, a very uh, good chance for Imperials to kind of rise up again, if you will. <laughs> well, I always flew uh, Whisper with uh, Fell. <laughs> And that was, yeah. Maneuverability and initiative have always been two of the, you know, strong um, dominating characteristics of competitive lists. I think um, both the Imperial as well as the Rebel Phoenix Squadron packs add uh, to that highly maneuverable ships, high risk, uh, high reward uh, type ships, a lot of maneuverability, a lot of speed, um, but also can potentially be a little bit fragile with those A-wings and the TIE Interceptors. Uh, TIE Defenders, really robust ship all around, and then now having Vader and the Force with it, it it's a little bit scary to see what may uh, come out of that <laughs> ship. Um, the third uh, squadron pack that got released at the same time was the uh, Fugitives and Collaborators for the Scum faction. Uh, not one that I've explored as much, uh, but there are uh, members of um, some of the animated series, Kanan Jarrus, who's the uh, uh, Jedi from um, Star Wars Rebels, has a new ship in there. The um, Hawk Freighter, um, I don't think has actually been released as 2.0, if I, if I recall. It's primarily been only released as a 1.0 ship. It shows up now as a 2.0 ship with this expansion pack. So for those who weren't able to acquire one, um, from 1.0, this gives them an opportunity to get that particular ship, as well as uh, two Y-Wings. And for all these expansion packs, they all come in new uh, paint schemes and everything like that um, that are uh, pretty excellent. Okay. How much is each one of these boxes? Uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, they're all MSRP uh, for $49.95. Um, so pretty reasonable considering that you're getting three ships per pack plus uh, expansions, upgrade cards, um, all the tokens, dials, etc. So $49.95 is uh, retail. Now, I want, meant to ask you, um, so with Armada, they've gone to where they have starter packs, but just on a fleet basis. Does this have, is this a starter pack with like dice and measuring tools and everything for X-Wing? So like, instead of buying the core set and then buying this, can you just buy this? Like pick a squadron and be ready to go? Yeah, you, you still do need the full core set to get all the other uh, rulers, templates, dice, um, those sorts of things. Uh, this is an expansion similar to buying a single ship expansion, except it is just bundled in the sense that there are some interactions and some cards that are unique to these uh, ships that aren't available in the um, uh, single um, ship packs and not available in the upgrades from 1.0 to 2.0. Well, this is something that um, I wish they had done back in 1.0 because what I saw in 1.0 is like, especially by wave six of releases, um, they started adding so many new mechanics that were being like pasted on. It was basically the dominant uh, ships for whatever was in the latest wave. Um, so no one was playing like wave one, wave two ships by the time like wave seven and eight came out. And you remember in wave one, in first edition, there was like the 10 levels of a pilot skill. And now they've gone to six. I... It seemed like as a business model, they just kept on releasing newer um, ships um, and like really digging deep to find new models to sell you. I always thought it's like, well, you have 10 levels of pilots for like a TIE Interceptor. I only have like these four pilots. Why? I always wanted them to sell card packs. Like, mm -hmm. why don't you sell me card packs of like different pilots to run in these same ships? It's like, it didn't matter if there are 10 levels because there were only four pilots spread out amongst that range. Now, when they dropped it down to six, it's like, okay, well, they're closer together, but it's not like there's a huge variety. This actually seems to be a chance to like 
finally add new named pilots um, to some of the existing ships out of there instead of saying, well, okay, here, buy new ships you've never heard of. Yeah, absolutely. They, they did have a very short release of um, just some pure card packs. It was only a one-time deal. Jeez, I want to say it was about nine months ago, maybe even longer now. I can't remember exactly, but they had packs for like the heroes and some things like that, which were strictly just pilots or upgrade cards that some people hadn't gotten through specific expansions. Um, and James, you're really right with the 1.0. It was kind of like, if you get the latest one, you had the most powerful thing and you couldn't really retroactively go back. I mean, it was the point where nobody played Luke Skywalker anymore. (laughs) You know, it doesn't make sense that you're playing a Star Wars game and Luke was essentially unplayable. Um, What they've done with 2.0 is that they've made it more dynamic. Instead of having the card values printed directly on the cards, it's all app-based now. So they they reassess it every three to six uh, plus months such that if a card is developing an interaction that becomes more powerful, they can adjust it. They can add upgrades, they can remove upgrades, they can change point costs to really try to keep it balanced such that if you came in and you know only invested a certain amount into the game that you'd still be competitive without having to always buy the latest and greatest. And I think with this latest round of the squadron packs, if you own a core set and say you wanna play Rebels and you buy the Phoenix Scale Squadron, or if you want to play Imperials and you buy the you know, Sky Strike Academy Squadron, you can have a competitive list without putting a ton into it. Um, and it just depends on how far you want to take the game after that. That's uh, the one I, the only ships I didn't buy was the, um, you remember X-Wing Epic? The, the Corvette and the Frigate? Yes. Um, I never bought those. Um, I always wanted to play like a, I don't even know what the points would not because I always wanted to play with the giant ones. Yep. <laughs> All that epic game mode. I can't, you know, I do own, I think, literally two of everything, including two of the Corellian Corvettes and two Raiders and things like that. But I can't say that I've actually played epic game mode yet. Um, my friends who have have said it's actually quite fun because of the sheer number of ships you have on the board at the same time. But uh, that's one of those things that hopefully we'll get a chance to uh, do soon here. Well, you know, I think 2.0 was needed, um, but I know they just burned a lot of the community. Um, And not in what they actually did, but what they said they were gonna do. Um, Because I remember when Fantasy Flight put out like the little video of what they were gonna do of like, okay, we're gonna have an upgrade pack. Um, so you can automatically transition and we're going to re-release every ship. Um, and in that re-release will be cards that aren't in the upgrade pack and weren't in the original. So it's like most of the hardcore players had already bought like three copies of every ship. And, uh, and I could see in their mind when they re- did that press release, it's like, you know what? Everyone's going to be pissed. It's like everyone's going to think, well, I'm going to have to go out and buy three of every ship again to get back to what I used to have and fantasy flight didn't actually carry through on that they did the upgrades and they re-released some of the ships but they didn't put like those extra special cards in there so that you'd have to buy them again but by then the damage was done but when you if you actually take a fresh look at like x-wing 2.0 it actually the rule book actually works a lot better than how it was towards the end of 1.0 of so i think what people don't give um, X-Wing a chance now is that um, when you look at the rule book, it's really thick and there's some dense rules in there, but only if you play certain birds. If you just do X-Wings versus TIE Interceptors, it's actually a very simple game. Get, get rid of turrets, get rid of torpedoes and bombs and just have ships on shit. It's an extremely easy game to play. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, like when I play with my you know, boys who are both elementary school age, I don't add all the fancy upgrades and everything. We're just out there to fly ships and they recognize some of them from the movies. They recognize some from the animated series and you're just out there to roll dice and maneuver. And then as you get more experience with it, then you start adding the other things in. But I think it is a very approachable game. And, you know, like you'd said, that transition from 1.0 to 2.0 did put off a lot of players. 
But I think what we've at least seen in our local community is that I've seen more new 2.0 players um, who joined the game after 2.0 that who weren't there before. And um, I'm hoping that, you know, that kind of carries on. Of course, COVID's put a big damper into all types of in-person tabletop gaming. Um, but at the same time, I think the momentum is still there and everybody's pretty antsy to start flying the ships again. Well, you know, let's let's move in the main uh, subject of the podcast and that is going to be you. So we're going to spotlight on you. And so I think the first time we met, you were playing X-Wing. And now when I lived in the DC area, I was like the store um, champion for uh, X-Wing as in I always showed up every week. I made sure the mats were set up. I wasn't any good at the game. I was more of like the Salieri. I could see how I was gonna lose. So like I could see the matrix to the point of where I'm gonna die right here four rounds from now. And I was normally right. I, I can normally foresee how I was gonna lose the game. So I very rarely won the game, but I, I enjoyed it. Um, and you know, I got the store to the point of where we had like, uh, we could set up a couple tables every week. We had reliable games. You, however, are on like a different level. You've actually done like tournaments with like. Um, I haven't done very well at them, but. <laughs> well, no, but as a as a host to like get the community sure. going, oh, like you, true. yeah, you took it to a higher level. Now my store was competing with Paul Heaver's store over in oh. Springfield, so it's like he was going to pull. You got a three-time world champion. Yeah. You're trying to compete against. <laughs> But you've you've actually set that up. Um, so normally we would start this is how did you get into tabletop miniature war gaming? What what's sure. your origin story? So my origin story is actually quite unusual. So I didn't get into tabletop gaming until I started playing X Wing about three to four years ago now. And the only reason why I had discovered the game was actually because of um, tournament prizes that were actually challenge coins. So like military challenge coins, I was collecting Star Wars based coins. And interestingly, I'd seen some on eBay, um, one of which was either an X-Wing or a TIE Fighter or something along those lines. So I purchased it. And it turns out that the seller was local to Albuquerque. And I started trying to do a little research into like, where were these challenge coin prizes coming from? It would say, you know, X-Wing tournament summer of 2016 or something like that. So um, the seller said, hey, why don't you stop by the game store? We could do the in-person transaction. You can actually see what the game is all about. Well, it turns out that that person was John Grasser. And uh, John is uh, was quite the uh, tournament player in 1.0, was very competitive. And I stopped by one of our local game stores on one of their X-Wing nights. Um, you know, I, I picked up the coin from them, but I also spent about an hour just kind of watching them play. And I was like, wow, here is a tabletop game that has a fixed duration. So it wasn't gonna last for days and days. Uh, the models came pre-painted, which I was really excited about. I mean, I'm painting now, but back in the back, back when people for Battletech and Warhammer and all those other typical tabletop games, even playing variants of Dungeons and Dragons, everybody paid their own miniatures. I was a little bit intimidated by that. But knowing that the X-Wing miniatures were pre-painted um, was a big incentive uh, for me that I could have something, you know, table tournament ready uh, straight out of the box. So I joined them a couple weeks later, uh, just borrowing some of uh, John's ships and um, played my first night and got a bit hooked on the game. Uh, again, as a fan of the Star Wars uh, universe and the lore and really appreciating the fact that they included things that were not just from the original trilogy, but included things from the books, from the animated series. It really delved into sort of the whole history of Star Wars. So um, that kind of is what got me involved into, in uh, X-Wing. And that was kind of my main tabletop game um, that I played for a couple years. And I just played locally at the, at the stores. Our stores would run some uh, smaller tournaments, um, relatively casual. And um, with our you know, other local store, Eden, opening up, I started frequenting that store. Uh, we had great support from um, Sean, the owner, in terms of the game. He was an X-Wing 1.0 player, and 2.0 was just coming around. And uh, he really wanted to help support that community. So 
from the tournament standpoint, I told him I'd be, you know, happy to help uh, organize events. Um, I'm always excited to have new players. I was a new player not that much earlier, and that community brought me and embraced me um, and really helped me grow as a player, and I wanted to kind of carry that forward with another store. Um, so that's how we started doing the uh, tournaments kind of every other month or so pre-COVID, and um, the, the, the store itself, Sean and... Um, Etten Games has just been a great sort of host and sponsor for us. They would provide the packs and just uh, and provided with us with an area and uh, supported that X-Wing community. Um, and at that point, um, again, speaking to some of the more veteran players who would travel to tournaments, uh, that's when I decided, you know what, there's, why not give it a try? I'd never done anything on that scale before and went to uh, one of the system opens out in Denver. It was my first tournament ever. Um, you know, did okay for a first-time tournament player. I won a couple of my matches, didn't make it into the second round, but still had a great time. It was a great community, and that's really kind of what made me want to travel more and become, a, again, more of a semi-competitive player again. Never really done super well, but uh, it's, it's all about the uh, community. So I've, I've seen that you've made your way out to, like, the D.C. metro area. Have you ever thought yes. about playing Nova Open? Uh, I have. I've actually now met a couple of the players out there. I've gotten to know uh, Paul Heaver from, you know, traveling to tournaments, uh, Duncan Howard, uh, Ron Brandon, a lot of the folks out there. I just haven't had a chance to make it out to their Nova Open yet. But we have seen each other at places like Gen Con or other system opens, Las Vegas Open, uh, things like that. All right. And I think from X-Wing, your second game was Battletech, right? That is correct, yeah. What, why the second game? Why did, what so, moved you in there? Absolutely. So I used to be a, more of a PC gamer. Um, I grew up playing games like Wing Commander and the old TIE Fighter, and one of them was the original Mech Warrior, Mech Warrior 2 uh, series. Okay. So I kind of had a little bit of understanding. I always liked the concept of uh, Battletech, but again, the game was somewhat intimidating to me because you had to assemble and paint your own miniatures. Uh, the rules seemed even more complicated than X-Wing, but you know, X-Wing was kind of an entry game to me. I got comfortable playing one, and I said, you know what, I've always appreciated the details of miniatures. Kind of having a general idea of how detailed the gameplay was in Battletech was just, I think, a natural progression for me to finally step in. And then, of course, on top of it, Sean, the uh, owner of Eden, that's probably his favorite oh, game series. And I mean, he's about as hardcore of a Battletech fan as it gets. I mean, he knows more, you know, he's kind of like a mini walking version of Sarna.net. Yeah. History <laughs> and lore and everything. And, and the fact that there is a strong storyline and history behind it, I think is something that really attracted me. I mean, just knowing that it's just not pushing some miniatures around the table and rolling dice, but you could actually bring it to another level where you can play in ways that represent the different houses, or you can play in a way that various mercenary or periphery state factions kind of function and you can have scenarios and, you know, it involves quite a bit of strategy. And again, the level of detail, again, was intimidating before, but and still somewhat intimidating. Again, I consider myself a, definitely a rookie Battletech player, but having things like, heat management which reflects like real world it's not that, just yeah not just like oh i'm gonna keep firing all my weapons until you know and here here's a boss code that i can just kind of put in there so i'm indestructible it's like <laughs> you really have to pay attention to kind of real world yeah i think heat management in battle tech really is that um what in like uh board gaming euro games where you have that resource management so it's not just about like yes. points for the model and amount of firepower you can throw. It's also like when you throw that firepower, you build heat up. And as you move that heat up, I mean, that that's what really adds to the complexity of the game there is trying to manage. Because otherwise you're right, you just alpha strike like every round. Over out there. Over over yeah. Exactly. <laughs> now you, you actually have a limited amount of ammunition. <laughs> yes. And that's you can also shoot someone's ammunition and blow their arm off or something like that. Exactly. Uh, now, did you get in with the release of the um, box set? Oh, let's see. 
here now. Was it right around the release of the new box set? It may have been right around that same time. I think it was right around that same time. I don't remember which came first, purchased the box set or if I'd actually purchased some of the minis. I want to say, actually, I think I just got the brand new Game of Armor Combat box set. I think that had come out within six months from the time I had started Battletech. So that was probably one of the initial things. I was like, oh, here we go. Here's some miniatures that are already pre-assembled. All I have to do now is just paint them. <laughs> so again, going from the completely assembled, pre-painted, to the assembled, but paint your own, to the, okay, well, I can paint a couple minis. Now, why don't I uh, try to put some together? And I think also right around that same time is when I went to uh, Gen Con in Indianapolis. It was the first Gen Con I'd gone to. And, um, at that um, Gen Con, I'd taken a course on how to paint Battletech miniatures from one of the camo specs painters. So just learning some little little tips and tricks that really kind of speeds up the whole painting process and adds to the quality of the miniature. So the first Battletech miniature I painted was the um, Griffin on the front of the Game of Armory Combat box set. It was based off of that, and that was the miniature they'd given us the paint there. So after painting that, I think it changed my perspective. I was like, hey, I can actually do this in about an hour and have something table ready. So let me go ahead and get the box set and start painting the uh, other miniatures. And then uh, let me actually start finding some of the old pewter IWM uh, Ralpartha <laughs> miniatures and putting those together and, and painting those. Um, you know, actually, it's, it's kind of interesting that Ralpartha IWM is based out of Cincinnati, Ohio. That's where I went to high school and my family was there and everything. And I had zero idea the whole time I was there that even <laughs> in the nineties and even in the eighties that Ralph Partha was right around the corner from where I lived. And, you know, in retrospect, <laughs> I probably would have spent a lot more time there had I known that. <laughs> well, I mean, that, that honestly what pulled me into Battletech was back in uh, the late eighties, the old um, unseen models. So the uh, land air mechs, um, yes. The Wasp and the Shadowhawk because of uh, Robotech and Macros. Um, Absolutely. I, so I actually have like some of the original Ralpartha still in clamshell, like Wasps nice. in there. It's just like, oh, I'll paint this later. And like 30 years later, like, I haven't opened it now yet. I'll just hold on to them. Yeah. They, they, they become a I've, big collectible. The original, like true lead, you know, I cannot put this in my mouth, lead. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, yeah. So I, I remember when they got rid of the lead in the miniatures, that was, mm -hmm. you know, it's like someone dr drowned a bag of kittens there when they announced that one out there. Like, how dare you take the lead out of my miniature? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, but so what caught my attention is like, much like a serial, serial killer, once is not enough. So like <laughs> you, you introduced your third game. So you started escalating and actually it seems right. like X-Wing, that at one point, that was like the most played um, tabletop miniature war game just because of that pre-printed. It was like a Disney Star Wars property, pre-painted, tear open the box, ready to go. Battletech, okay, Game of Armor Combat. You can, you have like your little pop-out standees if you don't want to paint the miniatures. The miniatures, one coat, some wash, you're good to go. Then you moved into MCP, so Marvel yeah. Crisis Protocol. I think that's yeah. when like uh, Brian and I caught our attention. And, like you're actually moving into a hardcore, like tabletop war game. Yes, yeah. So MCP caught my attention because I've always been the Marvel Universe fan, fan of X Men, Avengers, you know, pre movies, even you know, reading some of the comic books as a child and everything. So. Um, you know, catch it, riding that whole wave and seeing that they were coming out with a new tabletop game uh, looked really intriguing. Um, I'd watched probably some online videos about the gameplay. And again, it seemed like it was something that you could complete in a relatively fixed, shorter duration of time um, in terms of uh, completing a battle, if you will. And the miniatures looked really detailed. Um, and as I'm discovering now, you know, the assembly is, you know, it takes takes the, the detail and the assembly is something on even a different level compared to Battletech. Um, and in a way, I'm glad I kind of learned how to assemble the Battletech miniatures because I learned some techniques there in terms of how to hold parts together, 
for gluing purposes and things like that that have definitely come in handy for um, Marvel Crisis Protocol because again, when you have literally when you're adding on the claws of a Wolverine to, to a miniature or things like that, that that takes you know miniature building to a whole nother level. So um, so but yeah, the the miniatures look fantastic. Um, my painting does not compare with those of the professionals out there, but something that I'm still happy with, and it's, it's a way to kind of gradually improve my skills. And again, the assembly process and kind of the game mechanics seem uh, pretty awesome. I was just getting into it again when COVID hit, so I haven't really had a chance to play it as much, but the positive side is I can still build and paint miniatures such that I will have everything ready to go um, as, as I start playing the game itself. So let me ask you, as when I started buying in, it was pretty much um, when I became an adult, is all 28 mil. So I worked off the same scale. And then I started going, getting back into Battletech, which is a six millimeter scale. MCP's the 40 millimeter scale, but I stuck to 28 millimeter. You are kind of all over the map. Mm -hmm. um, so when you look at supporting basically three different game lines where there's no interoperability in terrain, board size, um, even some of the mechanics features. Number one question, how do you manage the storage? Because that's, <laughs> so with with my spouse, um, there comes a certain days of like, why can I turn my head and see miniatures in like every corner of the house? Um, so how, how are you managing, uh, storage on like how sure so let's, how how have you dedicated your um space like in your sure. house how sure. much space are you dedicating to this so i do have kind of my work office area that has you know everything i do for any work that i need to take home but it also includes most of the places where i do um where i keep most of my hobbies so all my battle tech manuals and books are on the shelf next to my work textbooks. I've got binders full of cards for uh, X-Wing and all their parts. So for X-Wing, I've used the fishing tackle boxes. Um, they've worked really well for me. Um, I do have like four large expandable tackle boxes now to house all my X-Wing. You know, it started with sort of one kit to be able to go bass fishing. And now I can probably, you know, fish for whatever I want in North America with the number of boxes, but I probably have about four for large tackle boxes that house all of my X-Wing ships. Um, and then I have a whole series of uh, binders for all the cards and maneuver dials. Um, and if you will, the little uh, cardboard bases for them. I have those organized by faction. So that takes up one shelf on a bookshelf for all the uh, binders and again, about four uh, tackle boxes for the uh, miniatures for X-Wing. Um, that doesn't even include promos and everything like that. <laughs> so I have, I have separate things, uh, I guess, within the X-Wing community, I'm known as the collector, um, because I probably have one of the, if not the largest uh, collection of X-Wing promos on the planet. Um, <laughs> So that, that's a whole different area where there are definitely boxes that have the, the promos in and things like that. For Battletech, um, I've kept most of my miniatures in uh, Feldhair uh, foam cases. So I have about three or four hundred fifty millimeter boxes of uh, Battletech miniatures. Um, the, the foams work really well just to kind of keep them separated and allow me to organize them by plan versus inner sphere and by uh, house and things along those lines. Um, I do have a separate uh, tackle, like single tray of a tackle box for all my dice and things like that for Battletech. But that's really it for Battletech. And then MCP right now, MCP has been challenging because the miniatures are of such different size. You know, at least within yes. the X-Wing universe, you have, you know, kind of small, medium, large, but they're all pretty flat. So they fit as a whole other than the epic level ships into those, um, you know, Plano type cases. Um, again, the Battletech, they're pretty much about that same sort of size as well. You know, with MCP, you can have the Hulk or you can have Captain America and they are very different sized miniatures. So for those, what, what I've been doing now is 
adding uh, rare earth magnets to the bases. And I've taken some larger, deeper uh, plastic um, storage containers like you could get at Target, Walmart, Amazon, wherever you name it, and put a sheet of um, magnetic, I guess it's a magnetic sheet on the bottom side. You know, it's got double-sided tape on one side. So I put that on the base of the container and then on the miniatures themselves, they've got the rare earth magnets and they can actually stick inside the box so they don't shift around and bump into each other. And, and with enough rare earth magnets, I can actually hold that box upside down without having the miniatures fall off of them. So I've gone to that as the way to store my MCP for now. I don't know if other people are doing other variants. I know some people are using foam cases that they're custom cutting. Um, but this allows me to keep those miniatures upright. Let me see if, here, I'll, I, I guess you can't see it anyhow. Can't see them. Yeah, so again, magnetic base, a magnetic sheet on the base, rare earth magnets on the bases of the miniatures themselves. It allows me to have miniatures of all sizes um, in the same box. Now, as I build that collection, I don't know if I'll just get more of the same size storage container and stack them. But um, essentially, one of my rooms is dedicated to pretty much all my gaming hobbies. Um, I have all, fortunately, I have all my painting supplies kind of together in various cases. Um, but yeah, it, it does take up some space. It does take up some oh, space. Do you also have the game table? Do you have like a six so by I do four? Not have a separate, I do not currently have a separate gaming table. It turns out that our uh, kitchen table is just over three feet um, wide. So I can actually fit a three foot by three foot gaming mat on this oval table perfectly and have some room on both sides <laughs> fit everything. We, we, we've had that table for a while, but it, it's turned into a perfect gaming table. Uh, we're lucky in my kitchen that we have an island sort of in the middle that can accommodate um, you know, a full size gaming mat, probably up to about two. So. That's turned into another makeshift area if I've had a couple people over at my home to, to uh, play simultaneously. Um, and I actually end up doing most of my painting in the kitchen. It's got probably the best lighting of any place. And again, I can kind of spread out a little bit. So my wife will also sometimes, you know, look at various Battletech miniatures and stages of uh, painting sitting there <laughs> next to the uh, kids' lunch or snacks or whatever else. <laughs> <laughs> so um how did you handle getting into the painting because i think that's like the biggest barrier for most people because most people can imagine all right the assembly because mm -hmm. um, i mean look barnes and noble is full of gunpla out there so obviously there's an appetite for assembly but priming and painting that seems like the biggest hurdle for most people and ebay is filled with um assembled but unpainted models how did you approach that? Yeah, so um, I think I probably started uh, watching videos on YouTube about uh, miniature painting. I mean, we're very lucky in this day and age that everybody seems to you know, have videos about how they do various styles of painting. Um, within the Battletech community, uh, Camo Specs um, has been one of my greatest resources. There are several um, uh, professional painters on there who will do 15, 30 minute walkthroughs about how they do certain techniques. So they had a technique about dry brushing. They had a technique about basing and creating terrain for your bases. They had techniques on um, um, how to use washes and oils and things like that to create uh, certain effects, how to do cockpit jeweling. So I spent a lot of time watching these videos uh, to kind of, you know, see the techniques. I started by buying, you know, a starter set of uh, paints, probably about eight basic colors and two brushes um, from my local hobby store and a can of uh, rattle can primer uh, from the same hobby store. So everybody's like, well, gotta prime them after you assemble them. So I just do a spray coat of priming. And then I would just try to look at, um, pictures, whether they're from books, magazines, online of, of, uh, hand, of, of sort of like cartoon, whether it's battle mechs or ships or whatnot, and try to come up with, you know, try to match a certain type of uh, color scheme. 
So I started doing that first. Um, and I would just, I posted my very first set of battle mechs on one of the Facebook painting and customizations group and asked people for feedback. And, you know, I didn't take it personally. I knew this is not a professional occupation for me. People gave me tips. And with the next round, I did something else. And as I went along, I learned how to, you know, uh, highlight more details. I started seeing where lighting and shading came from. Um, I discovered um, the decals that you could apply for really fine things instead of having to hand paint, <laughs> you know, apply decals for numbers and things like that. Um, and that's how it's kind of grown. And I think even in the short span of several months, like the quality of my painting just dramatically improved because as I watch, as I got more into it, I watched more videos. I tried to incorporate one new technique with every lance or every mech that I painted. Um, I tried to try a different type of terrain on every uh, lance that I did. So that one was a lunar surface, one was a jungle surface, one was an Arctic surface. And uh, every iteration got gradually better. And you just start, I think, developing, um, developing the sort of eye for things. Um, I also just really enjoyed it. And I think that's one of the things. You have to enjoy it. If you don't enjoy it and it's more work than it is hobby, then I think it can become painful. I take my time. You know, sometimes I'm able to put a couple hours into it one sitting. And some of my other lances have been spread out over a month. You know, I'll put in 15 minutes here, oh, everything gets a wash. You know what, I can't come back to it for another week. And then I do it in stages. So I don't keep myself in any sort of hard and fixed time frame. Um, I find it very relaxing and is something that I can kind of take my, way, my mind away from any sort of work or other, other things I have on my mind. It's kind of a nice, you know, release. So that, that's what's really allowed me to enjoy it. And as I've enjoyed it, I've gotten further and further into it. And Again, it's become less intimidating as you, you know, watch more videos and you get tips from people. All right, so let me ask you, what would it take to add game four? What would it take to add the fourth different war game? I, I think for me, I probably want more mastery of Battletech. I've got enough miniatures now for Battletech. I think I want to become more comfortable with the gameplay in the classic as well as in Alpha Strike. I mean, some of the folks that I played with, you know, they, they've memorized all the hit tables. They can tell you exactly where the hit is on what limb and everything when they roll the dice. I'm still flipping through pages. I don't necessarily need to be that far, but just a lot more smoother with the game mechanics. I don't have to really think about it as much. I think um, if I can accomplish that and I can get my miniatures painted and have a similar sort of grasp of MCP, then maybe I'll delve into a fourth one because... <laughs> Not only, you know, yourself and Brian, but I actually have a good colleague at work who's a huge Warhammer 40K player. He's like, this is the next thing. You're going to start doing this. <laughs> you know, right now, I've got a pretty decent handle on X-Wing. Battletech, I'm kind of in that phase in between where I've got my miniatures and everything, and I'm starting to understand the mechanics. MCP, I'm still at the beginning. I think if I've got Battletech, pretty well down and I'm kind of in that mid stage with MCP, maybe I'll consider adding a fourth tabletop game, but I don't know yet. <laughs> so we, we've talked about this offline, but so there are a community of Battletech players in Albuquerque, actually probably one of the largest surviving continues running Battletech groups on the planet and that these guys have been playing, uh, they were adults playing this game back in the eighties when I was a kid trying to buy exactly. these models, but there are a couple times where they, I've played them and they've cited like rules and I've gone back and looked in the book and I cannot find them. And so sometimes their comfort with rules. I have to think, was that the rule from 96? Oh, when FASA was still around. Um, <laughs> because, you know, I've bought like, the PDF versions from Catalyst Games. And so they actually just sent me upgrades to Total Warfare and the Alpha Strike yeah. book in the email saying, hey, re-download your, your manual. We have updates. And I have to wonder, I won't name names, but it's like, are they getting like the latest books? Are they staying fresh with it? Or am, am I playing a time capsule of like pre-clan? Um, so I, I have to wonder... I kind of wondered the same thing because the ability for them to recite things like 
you know, by verse and chapter, if you will, is pretty astounding. Though, I guess the one interesting thing about Battletech is that the classic Battletech, my understanding, is that it's essentially 95% the same from 1984 or 85, whenever the game first came out. Then in the last 30 some years, the true game mechanics have been pretty close to the original, which is, which is pretty astounding, I think. But, um, but that's what leads to mistakes. Yeah. Because a, a sense of familiarity bred over decades. So a slight change in a sentence and it's like all of a sudden like you're citing stuff like it's gospel. And it's like, well, that might have been the case 20 years ago. That's true. Right now, <laughs> you hit that 5% of the game that's changed. So That's true. That's very true. And it may have changed back and forth a few times. Yeah. <laughs> as well. And I think it probably has. You know. So, but I've, I think like Battletech harkens back to um, the pre computer era. And yes. I've, I've been in Etten like at lunchtime when those guys are playing like Tuesdays oh, yeah. back in. The, and it's like, I show up to use the Wi Fi and I leave and they're still playing. Like, there is no, it's like fishing. There's no sense of urgency to get the game done. And move on it's like and, and even though we haven't been able to play in the stores they're still doing it every tuesday out at one of the uh, local parks off of uh paseo i think they're out at domingo baca park every tuesday afternoon still <laughs> doing it or at in somebody's garage or something like that so uh <laughs> they are very dedicated <laughs> uh all right well so let's move to the next segment i think I think we understand the origin story here. So Horizon Scan, Ed, what are you looking forward to um, gaming-wise in the future? Sure. So um, I guess we could talk about it probably for the three different games that I currently play. I think for X-Wing, um, I'm definitely um, excited to hopefully get back to in-person gaming and hopefully actually get out to tournaments again soon. I think for me, that was one of the things I really started to enjoy right before uh, the COVID thing hit us. Um, and just to kind of have that interaction again with people around the country and even internationally. I've gotten to know people um, via the internet, via the various groups. And we were actually planning on meeting up at X-Wing Worlds last October in Minneapolis and couldn't do so because of all this. So I think that's one thing that I'm really looking forward um, for in terms of X-Wing, also some of the new expansions that may be coming on the horizon. And really getting our local group back together and again, trying to help support our local store from that standpoint. I think um, for Battletech, I did um, go in on the Kickstarter. I got all my wave one, which none of that is painted yet either, but, uh, <laughs> but wave two should be around the corner soon. We keep getting email updates, maybe by the start of the summer or so, wave two will be coming. And uh, that'll be exciting to just finally have everything um, together so that I know exactly how many more mechs I still need to paint and try to try to you know figure that out. It's probably a, at least 10 or 20 years worth, but nevertheless, um, I am looking forward to the completion of the uh, Kickstarter for Battletech. And again, really um, playing again in person and trying to get a better handle on it. And then with MCP, uh, I've been really excited that they've released the uh, X-Men recently and that they're continuing to build upon that side of the Marvel Universe and actually seeing the interactions between, if you will, more of the adventure, adve, uh, Avengers MCU versus the X-Men side of it and being able to have them on the same you know, playing field at the same time and maybe to even have some crossover. I mean, you're starting to see that potentially in upcoming movies. It'll be interesting to kind of mirror that in the uh, tabletop game. So um, various things for the various games that I'm playing currently. You know, something I would like for MCP. So that, that's more Erin's game. That all those models, I I just paint them. That's <laughs> her game there. But I would just like regular Agents of Shield or Sword. Just where where are the henchmen? Just like the non mutant, non superpowered guys in the background there. I would I'd like more of those. Um, where's like your level one guy who can't pick up a car and throw it? But you get like a ton of them. <laughs> um, but I think for me right now, um, Kickstarter, Cyberpunk Red, which is a monster fight club company out of uh, 
rural Virginia down in the Shenandoah Valley. So Charlottesville, Virginia, they do the a 32 millimeter line of um, cyberpunk themed models. And I bought them before to use in other games because um, they just really hit the theme of what a lot of people portray as cyberpunk. They finally um, are going to release a skirmish war game. Um, and they just launched it on Kickstarter. And I think within the first day, they like beat their uh, goal by like 300%, um, which does kind of scare me. Now I know they've done Kickstarters in the past. They actually are their own manufacturer. So that makes me feel better. I think you and I, when we were watching the Battletech Kickstarter release um, on the first day, when they blew through, what were they like a million dollars on the first day? And they ended on like three and a half million. Yeah. Yeah, that, that scared me. Cause I know Catalyst doesn't do their own manufacturing. They basically, contract out their manufacturing and just do final assembly and any company that plans on doing you know fifty thousand dollars worth of work and then ends up with three and a half million i'm actually surprised that they've been able to hit any of their goals at this point (laughs) because any manufacturer that says oh yeah i know i was planning on doing this amount of work like you know fifty thousand now i need to do three and a half million dollars of work that changes the equation so Um, it scares me when Kickstarters either don't hit their goal or blow it out of the water. But um, I'm looking forward to that. And as a Kickstarter, they have a retail option. So my safety valve is to try to talk to Sean at Etten because he carries some of their miniature range. Is like, here, why don't you put your money, whatever you get, um, I'll buy it. Like you, they're a $500 retail package. Put in for that. And when it shows up, then my money is actually on the line. So I'm trying to talk him into like backing that one. And we've gone back and forth. Uh, He, he wrote me and said like, um, how to put this. He's not a careful reader. Uh, So it's like, okay, you give them $500 you buy at like the retailer price in return, I'll buy like the core set and like all the little gangs. My, my issue though, is I already have some of the miniatures and they're mm-hmm. on the Kickstarter. They're actually having like these upgrade packs. So if you brought one of their previous gangs, they'll just sell you the cards. You don't have to uh-huh. buy it all over again. So it's like, I don't know if that'll be in the retailer kit. Uh-huh. So yeah. that that's going to be the issue there, but you know, uh, so it's like first rule of business, always risk other people's money. Don't <laughs> risk your la- money as a last resort. Right. <laughs> but because, yeah. uh, you know, Kickstarter is always such, it can become a huge money sink if you play multiple right. games because yeah. there's always people selling miniatures on there. And if you have a problem like uh, Brian and I do, um, Kickstarters are like a bad idea. It's like... Uh, just pumping fentanyl into it. You're just pumping fentanyl into whatever you're shooting up. <laughs> the Battletech Kickstarter is the only Kickstarter I've actually supported uh, up until this point. Um, I didn't know really what to expect. And I guess for a first time experience, I've been pleasantly surprised. I think you know Catalyst managed to handle it pretty well, despite the amount of volume I think that they got. I think the only part that I can think of where they may have lost a little quality control was some of the uh, faction dice. They're not exactly cubes. They're <laughs> yeah, quality control of the dice. Yeah, I, they're good for looking at and maybe for marking, but I don't know that I would roll them and expect them to roll the same way. Um, like I, I don't think a casino, a casino would definitely not let them pass. <laughs> Visibly uh, asymmetric. But other than that, they've actually done a great job with everything else. And I think they're trying to make it right. I don't know what they're going to do um, about the dice, but they have actually reached out to the community to try to make that right. So I guess that's maybe one of the things that I kind of appreciate that there is, I guess, a large enough company kind of backing it. But again, I didn't know if all this would disappear. You hear the horror stories about people who back Kickstarters and 10 years later still haven't heard from anything, you know, yeah. it happened within the X-Wing community on somebody who was making templates, if I'm not mistaken, but um, 
yeah, so we'll see. But hopefully uh, they'll complete that Battletech Kickstarter soon. Well, it's just the Wave 2, then you're done, right? Yep. There's uh, no Wave 3? No, there's no Wave 3. Okay. Not yet. Well, I, I noticed that uh, Sean gets his waves at the same time as the regular people. So it's like, I can have those at the same time as everyone else. I don't, I don't have to wait. <laughs> exactly. Unfortunately, you know, he, he's backed it so much that he'll have everything that you could ever get. You know, if he wasn't married, you know, he'd have one of the pilot cards and like Canon what was that ultimate package was like the tour i think it was like thing. a con level or something like that where you actually like go out to catalyst games and help do game development or something like that I that think was like the like, 10 grand like yeah that was like ten thousand dollars or something yeah uh yeah if he wasn't married i know he'd he'd put the money I'm down sure he would have. i'm sure there, he would have. there'd be a red-headed guy with a beard piloting a mech <laughs> it'd be in an archer too i think he's yeah. a huge archer if i'm not mistaken He'd have his character as, no, he's a, is he, is he a Steiner or Merrick guy? I can't remember. He's definitely he's a, a Merrick. Fan. I think, I I think, think he's a Merrick fan. He's a Merrick guy. So somebody, he, he'd be out there piloting, a, you know, a purple archer <laughs> with, you know, gold accents and things like that. Uh, that's true. All right. Well, Ed, I'd like to thank you for joining us today on the podcast. I hope to have you on sometime in the future. So thank you for joining us at Miniature Wargaming Labs, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much.